1921 was the year Seems like yesterday to me Let me tell you about what happened then Back in the mine country We were fighting hard to build a union Cause at 40 cents a ton There was no way to feed a family When the mining day was done Strike had lasted for a year when they shot down smiling Sid. He was a lawman who looked out for us miners. That's the only crime he ever did. A hundred miners locked up with no trial. There in Mingo Town, but the last straw came in Sharples when they gunned the women down. Now we're marching. On Domingo, 10,000 men and counting Here in the hills of West Virginia At the Battle of Blair Mountain One hundred years ago in a rural mountain stretch in middle America A violent labor uprising took place A battle of good versus evil, rebellion against wage slavery a fight for freedom against tyranny. Yet this historical memory lies dormant in most minds today. Critics loved the show. Haywood Brune, founder of the American Newspaper Guild, called it the most amusing musical review of this or any other season within the recent memory of man. Welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, Labor Day weekend marked the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain part of the brutal and violent West Virginia mine wars. Empathy Media Lab's Evan Papp traveled to West Virginia to march in those historic footsteps, to bear witness to battles that some would like us to forget. And he brings us the sounds of history past and present. From the On The Line podcast, we bring you their story from September 1938, when the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union brought their theatrical musical hit, Pins and Needles, to Vancouver, British Columbia, where it played to glowing reviews. And, on Labor History in 2... The year was 1934. That was the day Rhode Island Governor Theodore Green demanded that federal troops be sent to crush a textile strike in his state. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. It was the operator's law. We dug trenches and wore helmets that we brought from the Argonne. All the way from France to Lowland, we fought from dusk to dawn. President Harding sent in the army, we left our line to them. But the hills of West Virginia will long remember when. We were marching on Domingo, 10,000 men and counting here in the hills. West Virginia, at the Battle of Blair Mountain. 
100 years ago, in a rural mountainous stretch in Middle America, a violent labor uprising took place. A battle of good versus evil, rebellion against wage slavery, a fight for freedom against tyranny. Yet this historical memory lies dormant in most minds today. When I learned about the centennial gathering in remembrance of the Great Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia over Labor Day 2021, I knew I had to go, not just to document the event and raise awareness through the Labor Radio Podcast Network, but I needed to go for myself, to march alongside the United Mine Workers of America upon the hallowed ground where miners fought for their rights and a better future for every worker. Who were these people willing to risk it all for what they believed in? What could provoke an impoverished population to find solidarity despite their differences and declare war against the bosses? The following excerpt is from a speech by Cecil Roberts, president of the United Mine Workers of America, who helped organize the march to Blair Mountain. 100 years ago, this was a very significant place. There's a lesson for all of us. The millionaires and the billionaires across this country of ours, they're very powerful. They're making it so difficult for folks who have to work for a living. Why did you never hear about this march? Working class history is just never topped to the degree it should have been. So why did we want to recreate this march? Because we are bound and determined that the history of our forefathers will not be taken away from us by any rich person, any government, whether it be state or federal. We should turn this into a historic place where we learn about our history. There is a reason the ruling class suppressed the memory of this labor history that ensured state textbooks removed any mention of the mine wars. But they failed. A hundred years later, thousands of us descended upon this area to remember our ancestors' struggles. While walking amongst fellow marchers, I recorded the following interviews. My name is Shogaree Craddock Justice. I'm marching today in memory and honor of my dad, Sorry, he just passed away. Retired coal miner. My grandfather's both of them was also a coal miner. My grandfather, Johnny Grimmett, was a coal miner. My father-in-law, Harley Justice, was a coal miner. And my brother-in-law, Steve Justice, a coal miner as well. My great-grandfather, Charles Wallen, actually was involved in this battle of Blair Mountain. I just wanted to take the chance and honor them for keeping the lights on. My mother has insurance today, even though my dad is dead and gone, because he was a coal miner and we have this union, so it still lives on. So I'm sorry, I'm emotional. It really warms your heart with everything going on today. It's so bad in the world. And I'm just proud to be able to have the honor to be around them and to make some new friends and stand up and be a part of something that's good. I'm Kip Dawson, a woman coal miner from Pennsylvania. I'm Libby Lindsay Fingus. I worked 21 years at Bethlehem Mine in Boone County. And why are you marching today? Well, we're both happy to be veterans of working in United Mine Workers' Mines and working to support unions the whole time that we were coal miners. I'm honored to be able to be part 
of this commemoration today. We're not only celebrating our history here, but educating people about what is possible when people come together and the need to do that now more than ever. I am really glad that today is happening because we need to show people the real history of how we got things like Social Security and any kind of protection for workers in this country. When workers come together and organize in unions and the unions stand together with one another, we've got a power that is much missing in the United States today and that we need to build. And it was our forebears who did this march 100 years ago who most demonstrated that. They lost that particular battle, but they gave us a legacy to build on. And we were able to work in union minds because of what they did. So we're trying to carry it on. It's sad that this 100th anniversary is the first time that so many people in this country knew this even went on. It's good that it's finally drawn attention to it, that it's gotten coverage and start to educate people a little bit. We do not teach working-class history at all in our schools. People, if you don't know your past, you can't move forward in the way that you need to. My name is Johnny Walker, Local 610 out of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And could you talk about why you wanted to come from Baltimore to do this walk? I just was drawn to it. I've always been drawn to labor and to doing the right thing. And this was one of those things. I've been waiting two years to go ahead and march with these miners to go show my dedication to them. But it's a lot more than just me, and that's what draws me here. My name is Chris Mark. I live in Pittsburgh. So you said you go up these roads quite often, and you have a lot of history here? Well, I used to work in the mines here in the mid-'70s, and I lived in a trailer on Camp Creek, which was just the next holler over this mountain right here. And why are you marching today? Well, I think it's important for people to remember their, their heritage, the union that did an incredible amount of good for the people down in this area. Coal miners went from one of the hardest, worst paid jobs to one of the best paid industrial jobs in the country when the union was strong. The sacrifices that the generation of a hundred years ago made that made those advances possible. And I think it's important for people to remember the lessons that when working people work together, they can make great changes to make society work for them. What would you like people to know about Blair Mountain and the struggle in this part of the world? People talk about the sacrifices that were made, but if you think about what they actually were, that these miners 20, 30 miles from here felt so strongly about the oppression that was going on in this part of the world, where you had martial law and a reign of terror and Union people were being thrown in jail without charges, without trial, and held purely at the will of the, of the martial law military commanders, and that they were willing to leave their jobs, leave their homes, leave their families, and risk their lives to try to win the same freedoms for these miners that they felt that they had themselves in the Union counties. And it's the willingness to make those kinds of sacrifices to ensure that we live in a society that works for everybody. And I think that's just a lesson for all of us. Teaching others about the Battle of Blair Mountain can be a revolutionary act. 
for the lesson demonstrates how a multi-ethnic, multi-racial group came together in union solidarity with class consciousness to fight a neo-Confederate system of finance capital, industrial owners, and their political shills. My own windy journey as an unorganized worker is what led me to this land on Labor Day weekend. To find hope. To overcome the pessimism after 20 years of senseless wars. A two-year pandemic ripping the fabric of society apart with no end in sight. Riots and unrest amongst our citizens. And a market economy that seems to mint a billionaire with every million humans living in poverty, scarcity, and immiseration. As winter approaches, I feel great trepidation for what is coming. The times will only get harder. The struggle will only grow longer and deeper. And still, I believe we will march on in solidarity for what is right, for what is ours. As did those workers and their families a hundred years ago. Union solidarity forever. Those marchers created the working class. They created the middle class, giving people a voice at work and ability to stand up and fight back. That's why people, whenever they take Labor Day off, tell them, thank a union. When you see all these people with a social security check, you think they fell out of the sky? Thank a union. If you've got a Medicare card in your pocket, you should what? Thank a union. What? Thank a union. What? Thank a union. If indeed you get a pension, I don't care where you work, you should do what? Thank you. If you've got a safe place to work, you should. Thank you. If you've got a job that allows you to live in the middle class, you should. Thank you. If you've got equal rights as a woman, you should. Thank you. If you've got equal rights because you belong to a union and a person of color, you know where that came from, you should. Thank you. If you've got anything good in your life, and you work for a living, you should. Thank you. It's all of you working together, standing together. Thank you and God bless you. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that aims to shine a light on British Columbia's rich labour heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. This month, we bring you the remarkable story of Pins and Needles, one of the most unlikely hit Broadway musical reviews ever. Not only was the show funded and created by a union, 
every one of the singers, dancers, and performers were members of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, who had low-paying factory jobs in the sweatshop textile industry. And, in the fall of 1938, Pins and Needles came to Vancouver for two evening shows and a matinee. Here, as elsewhere, audiences were enthralled. They couldn't get enough of the singing, dancing members of the ILGWU and their pointed songs that were both catchy and progressive. One of the songs was so good, it was recorded by jazz great Cab Calloway. One big union for two. Nudge, nudge. I'm on a campaign to make you mine. I'll pick it you until you sign it. One big union for two. No court injunction can make me stop until your love is all closed shop. In one big union for two. Seven days a week I want the right to call you mine for day and night. The hours may be long, but 50 million union members can't be wrong. When we have joined up, perhaps there'll be a new recruit or two or three. For that's what teamwork can do. We'll get back to the Vancouver shows in a bit, but first, some background. The International Ladies' Garment Workers Union was founded in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. It was one of the few unions to have a membership consisting almost entirely of women. Deplorable working conditions in the textile industry galvanized union organizing. Locals followed in Montreal and Toronto, then Winnipeg and Vancouver. In the 1930s, embracing the progressive politics of the times, the ILGWU invested in innovative programs for its members, cooperative housing, education, and recreation and cultural pursuits such as art, drama, music, and dance. At some point, the union's cultural director, Louis Schaefer, had this crazy idea. Let's put on a show. Even crazier, the show would be performed by textile workers themselves. He hired a socially conscious, little-known music dabbler named Harold Rome to write the songs and the lyrics. Then the real work began. A hand-picked cast of 45 workers had to be trained from scratch. They rehearsed from 7 to 10 at night after finishing their factory shifts. This went on for 18 months. Cutters learned to tap dance. A quartet of pressers and knitwear men became expert at harmony, and so it went. All that effort paid off. The show opened on November 27, 1937, and it was a hit from the start. The review soon moved from Fridays and Saturdays to six nights a week. Performers went from getting 50 cents a night for dinner to actors' salaries, and best of all, they were excused from their regular factory work. In one skit, the actors described the kind of work they did in the factories. They followed this with a witty and tuneful number, Sing Me a Song of Social Significance, performed here by Nita Carroll and Alan Holt. I'm tired. 
tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me mad. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of past. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it, appealing with feeling and meat in it. Sing me a song with social significance, or you can sing till you're blue. Let meaning shine from every line, or I won't love you. Sing me of wars and sing me of breadlines. Tell me of front-page news. Sing me of strikes and last-minute headlines. Press your observation and syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hard with what is what, or I won't love you. That's satirical and putting the mirror into miracle. It must be packed with social fact, or I won't love you. Sing me of kings and conferences, Marshal. Tell me of mills and mines. Sing me of ports that aren't impartial. What's to be done with them? Tell me in rhythm. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must be tense with common sense. For I won't Much to their surprise, critics loved the show. Haywood Brune, founder of the American Newspaper Guild, called it the most amusing musical review of this or any other season within the recent memory of man. The renowned Walter Winchell hailed it as one of the best musical shows of the year. John Mason Brown of the New York Post wrote, It manages to say serious things lightly and to indict with a song and a smile. And, on March 3, 1938, Pins and Needles was put on at the White House for President and Eleanor Roosevelt. Four months after leaving her factory job, performer Nettie Harari could scarcely believe it. We weren't actors. We were sewing machine operators, cutters, tailors, dressmakers. It was such an honor. It was like being given an Academy Award. The production was such a success the union decided to take it on the road, both as a moneymaker and as a reward for its hard-working cast, few of whom had traveled anywhere beyond New York. Leaving a replacement cast for the ongoing Broadway production, the original troupe toured major cities across the United States and Canada. Sometimes they attracted protests by those objecting to its anti-fascist, pro-worker politics. In Montreal, the show had to be placed under police protection 
after a gang of fascists tried to disrupt it for lampooning Hitler and Mussolini. There was no such problem in Vancouver. The first big musical review to play the city since the start of the Depression, its three performances took place September 19th and 20th, 1938 at the large, now demolished, Empress Theatre at the corner of Gore and East Hastings. The cast was billed as, quote, just plain, simple, common, ordinary, everyday men and women who work hard for their living, unquote. On opening night, a capacity crowd packed the theatre. The Vancouver Sun sent its Society Pages reporter, who noted the presence of, quote, a large section of local trades and labour union members who turned out in full force to support this novel theatrical undertaking of their colleagues from south of the line, unquote. There was hardly a dress suit or evening frock in the whole Empress Theatre, the Vancouver Sun added. With many in the audience tilting leftwards, no wonder one of the biggest hits in a show that was full of them was the fun song, Doing the Reactionary. Reviewer Stanley Bly was full of praise. There is a forcefulness and sincerity in the playing of these young people which carries conviction. Through the medium of song, dance, and sketch, they present the message of the worker. But it is all done with a smile and a jest. The Vancouver province singled out three performers and what they used to do. Millie White's hemmed dresses. Ruth Rubinstein operated a machine that made brassieres. 
and Ann Brown worked in a Philadelphia sweater factory for $15 a week. While on the road, they made $37.50 a week. The rest of the proceeds went back to the union. Mind you, political theatre wasn't new to the 1930s in Vancouver. Both the Communist Party and the CCF put on plays they hoped would educate people about socialism and their party's platforms. Arthur J. Turner, who represented Vancouver East for the CCF and NDP for 25 years, worked with the South Hills CCF Club to stage an adaptation of the Irish working-class classic The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists and a children's play about monkey rebels and the injustices of capitalism. The mighty Roberts Creek CCF staged You Can't Tell Me about the importance of unionism. Ideological plays such as these are a rarity today, but Pins and Needles has lived on. After its historic three-year run on Broadway, the show was revived off-Broadway in 1978, running for 225 performances. Earlier, to mark the show's 25th anniversary, a studio recording of the score was released in 1962. Among those on the album was a young singer named Barbara Streisand. Pins and Needles was also put on in the UK to good reviews in 2010, and a year later, a social justice group in New York updated the show to incorporate songs from well-known black singers Lead Belly and Josh White that helped the review explore the African-American experience, which had not been part of the original production. As for the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, the former ILGWU merged with the hotel and restaurant workers to form a new union called Unite Here. Local 40 of Unite Here is BC's union for hotel and hospitality workers. The changing focus became necessary with the gradual disappearance of hundreds of thousands of jobs in Canada's textile industry, exacerbated by free trade. But for much of the 20th century, the ILGWU was a force to be reckoned with on the shop floor and once, remarkably, on the stage. Looking back in 1978, at the time of Pins and Needles' off-Broadway revival, Tom Prito of the New York Times wrote, As it went on, it became one of the most romantic episodes in American stage history. It lifted scores of obscure workers into a new world of success. They acquired a sense of importance, as if the American dream machine had gone into mass production. Maybe it's time for an updated production of Pins and Needles here in Vancouver. Thanks, as always, to the other members of the podcast crew, Bailey Garden and Patricia Weir. Lucy McNeil was the voice of Nettie Harari. John Mabbott voiced the two excerpts from the newspapers. Donna Sakuda provided the inspiration for this podcast and added research. The rendition of Doing the Reactionary was by the Hudson Delange Orchestra featuring Mary McHugh. This has been yet another look back at one of those union blasts from the past that should be much better known. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on The Line. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough.
Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day Rhode Island Governor Theodore Green demanded that federal troops be sent to crush a textile strike in his state. The general textile strike, then in its second week, stretched across the Piedmont from New England to Georgia. Green declared, quote, We are face to face, not with a textile strike, but with a communist uprising. His demands came after days of pitched battles between thousands of strikers and the Rhode Island National Guard in Salesville and Woonsocket. Secretary of War George Dern assured the governor and the press that 3,000 combat troops were ready and available for immediate duty in Rhode Rhode Island. President Franklin Roosevelt declined to send in federal troops, but the state assembly authorized the governor to close the mills and appropriated $100,000 in funds to beef up state police forces. The governor then directed Rhode Island's police chiefs to round up all communists on charges of inciting riots in textile centers across the state. It gave local authorities the pretext to round up and arrest over 200 alleged agitators, strike leaders, militants, and radicals. Over the course of four days, three strikers had been killed, including Charles Gorsinski at Salesville and Jude Cordomenci at Woonsocket. Hundreds had been seriously injured in the two cities. Seven of the 16 strikers who had been shot by state troops were near death. State National Guardsmen had been given the shoot-to-kill order to protect the mills and the scabs. Once the governor shut down the mills, police forces easily arrested dozens of flying squadron picketers and established martial law-like conditions, though it was never officially established. Within days, the strike would be quelled in Rhode Island. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review that really helps folks to find the show. Our report on the Battle of Blair Mountain came from Empathy Media Lab. Find their shows wherever you listen to podcasts by searching for Empathy Media Lab. The Pins and Needle Report is from the On the Line Stories of BC Workers podcast, also available wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes Battle of Blair Mountain by David Rovix and Sing Me a Song of Social Significance from the Pins and Needles musical. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history, and see you next time.